Welcome to BTEC B Talk, a podcast series from the Biomass Thermal Energy Council. I'm Joe Seymour, BTEC Program Coordinator for Policy and Governmental Affairs. In our monthly podcast, BTEC interviews key decision makers and pioneers of the biomass energy industry. This project is made possible by a grant from the U.S. Forest Service's Wood Education and Resource Center. In our fifth broadcast, we explore the nexus of agriculture and biomass thermal energy. While woody biomass is seen as the dominant source of fuel for biomass thermal energy users, agricultural products and residues do play a role in powering the U.S.'s renewable energy sector. A 2005 study by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory estimated that crop residues and switchgrass from conservation reserve program lands total nearly 240 million tons a year, or 56% of uh, overall U.S available biomass resources. And as we will learn from our guest, the potential expanded role of the agricultural industry will involve environmental improvement measures, economic balancing, and revised land use policy. Joining us is Dr. Tom Richard, Director of Penn State's Institutes of Energy and Environment and a professor in the Department of Agricultural and Biological Engineering. He also leads a research group that focuses on biomass supply chains. Tom, my first question. What are the current sources and amounts of agricultural feedstocks being used for thermal energy applications? And how will this amount change in the future? So there aren't really great numbers tracking the the question of how much agricultural material is going into thermal applications. But anecdotally, I think it's it's pretty clear that the biggest single component is probably corn, burning corn and pellet stoves. So there are lots of folks uh, throughout the country, but of course a lot in the Midwest where uh, corn is in the corn belt, that are using pellet stoves and feeding them some of their grain. And depending on the price of their alternatives, the price of of pellets, the price of electricity, natural gas, or coal, uh, they'll be switching back and forth from different types of fuel sources. There is an increasing amount of uh, agricultural biomass pellet uh, operations going into pellet stoves and, and also larger systems, but uh, it's it's growing, but it's growing from a fairly small base, and we don't have as many agricultural residue pellet mills as, as we really want to have. There have been a, a few challenges getting those built in terms of getting the, the same quality that's possible with uh, wood residue pellets. Tom, you mentioned the pelletizing of agricultural residues. What kind of refining processes do these residues require? So the challenges with processing and pelletizing ag residues, there, there are really several of them. One is that the, the conventional wood pellet systems work, but they don't work that great. Uh, because there's a lot less lignin in most ag residues, that, that lignin melting and binding and adhesion uh, component is a, a little bit less effective, and so the pellets tend to not have the same strength and stability. Um, there are some groups that have actually worked on that and pretty effectively. So I've seen some very high-quality uh, pellets coming out of Missouri and, and Pennsylvania um, in the last six, eight months. Uh, so I think the technology piece is coming along pretty nicely. Uh, price and availability remain issues, and, um, and also pre-processing. How do you get that agricultural residue, which is typically going to be um, available seasonally, whether it's corn stover or um, a straw or something like that, is typically harvested at a particular time of the year. And keeping that material dry, which is going to be pretty important for pellet operations at the, or at the right moisture content, which is not typically bone dry, um, and then uh, in high quality year-round so you can run an efficient operation is an issue. And, of course, price will always be an issue in finding the right price point to make it worth 
collecting and harvesting the residue and then converting it into pellets for an appropriate market. Thanks, Tom. Now, regarding resources, is there much competition for agricultural residues between the bioenergy and traditional markets? Right now, these agricultural residues are uh, really have two primary uses. Uh, one is, and, and one I'll come back to, is kind of the environmental use. Uh, they're typically being uh, left on the soil surface, providing some erosion control benefits and also uh, carbon cycling and renewal for the soil organic matter. Um, there are quite a few residues that are used for other purposes. Typically right now, those have been more conventional agricultural purposes, uh, straw being used for animal bedding, uh, sometimes as a feed for ruminant animals like cows and cattle, um, a little bit of it going into uh, biomass materials, so fiberboard-type products, things like that. And, then, uh, and right now, relative to the amount that's out there, a very small fraction going into other uh, biomass fuels like liquid fuels. Really, at this point, it's primarily the pilot scale. Now, what does the competition look like for these resources in the future? Now, as we look at that competition and that portfolio of uses for agricultural residues over the next 10, 20 years, uh, I see that changing quite a bit. Uh, I think the, the competition with what I'll call that environmental market for using that material for erosion control for soil organic matter that will be big. And of course, a major driver for any biomass energy activity is the sustainability of the system. And right now, most of the systems that we are looking at our residues from are going to have some challenges getting a lot of that residue diverted while still maintaining the ecosystem benefits that we're expecting from those systems. The other components, I think that there will be increased interest in using ag residues for biomaterials, for fiberboard product, for other material products. I, I don't see as much growth and in increased competition in the conventional agricultural uses of, of bedding um, and feed because I think we'll find that there are other materials, including byproducts from energy operations, that will help to supply those markets. Tom. Concerns about resource sustainability are always, or should always, be present during bioenergy development. How is the agricultural sector addressing sustainability within the framework of providing biomass feedstocks? So when you look at a typical agricultural ecosystem, uh, you've got plant material that's growing. It's growing often just seasonally. Uh, we, we do, of course, most of our agricultural crops are annual crops like corn, soybeans, wheat, etc., and we usually only harvest a small fraction of the biomass that's grown. The, the seed, the, the corn grain, the soybean, the, the wheat grain, etc. And a, in most of our agricultural commodity crops, it's, it's a roughly half of the total above ground biomass that's in that seed fraction. Uh, so we've potentially got another half of the biomass that is a residue material, corn stover, wheat straw, etc. And uh, there's been a lot of interest over the last uh, more than a decade in, in how much of that material is out there and how much of it we can use. Um, we've, we've early on determined that we don't want to take so much off that we increase the soil erosion and the conservation programs really starting back at the Dust Bowl and Depression era have been organized pretty strong and there's a good understanding among farmers that they don't they cannot allow bare soil to be on the ground year-round uh, or during the wintertime and, and uh, see lots of erosion. So early on, we thought 
we could still leave uh, a small fraction of that residue on the ground and have good erosion protection benefits. But over the last three or four years, we've seen a lot of evidence that if we take um, all the biomass but that fraction, small fraction that we need to leave for erosion, we're going to see decreased organic matter content in the soil. And that's a bit contrary to one of our goals, which is to build soil quality over time, or at least to maintain it, and also to encourage uh, some carbon sequestration in our biomass production systems. That's not such a big problem with the perennial crops, the dedicated energy crops like switchgrass, miscanthus, et cetera. But when we start working with the annual production systems, we have to be a lot more careful about that. And right now, the evidence is that you have to have very high yields in order to uh, pull significant and commercially viable quantities of residue off of a field. That's with a system that just has annual crops. And one of the big areas of research from my group and many others is how do we actually change that equation? And uh, there seems to be a big opportunity with looking at winter crops. Uh, these would be things that farmers know of as cover crops, uh, might be annual rye, might be a legume. Sometimes it could be a, an energy oil seed like canola or camelina. And so there's a, a lot of interest in how we can integrate those winter crops into our agricultural systems for two reasons. One is that by having an additional crop on the soil and the root biomass from that crop contributing to soil organic matter, we can replenish the soil organic matter almost year-round, and that should allow us to take more of the above-ground biomass from the summer crop, the, the corn or the wheat, off as residue for, for biomass energy applications. The other interesting piece is that those winter crops might themselves actually produce a, a really interesting feedstock for biomass and bioenergy. Um, I mentioned canola. That's an oil seed that makes a really great biodiesel product. Uh, we're doing a lot of work with winter rye. That is a cellulosic feedstock. If it goes to grain, that could be a, another uh, starch feedstock for ethanol production. So there's a lot of potential there to look at integrated systems that actually produce some residue from the summer crop, but also a lot of biomass from a winter crop, and together they can achieve those sustainability criteria that were so important for any biomass use. Tom, I've noticed that every time the future of bioenergy systems is discussed, purpose-grown energy crops enter the discussion. How big of a role do you see energy crops playing in biomass energy applications today, with thermal specifically, and what is their potential in the future? Well, right now the dedicated energy crops and I'll just sort of mention some of them, but they'll, they'll include uh, switchgrass, which is probably the most widespread uh, of the dedicated energy crops grown today, uh, miscanthus, which over much of the U.S. has higher yields than switchgrass, potentially double the yield in, in many regions, and uh, various short rotation woody crops. I would say those are the, the, the biggest opportunities right now. Uh, willow, poplar, uh, there's a lot of interest in alder in the, in the west, uh, maybe some some pine in the southeast. So those crops are primarily going to be grown for their energy value. Um, they are going to have to do a couple of things. First of all, the sustainability concerns will have to be met by them. I think that's going to be easy for the perennial grasses like switchgrass and miscanthus. Maybe not so easy for the short rotation woody crops. Um, you know, and grown in the right place, I think they'll they'll be quite attractive. But forest soils don't typically sequester as much carbon as grassland soils, so they, they won't get as much of that benefit. Um, 
they will have a, a challenge, though, with price, uh, because when you look at a dedicated energy crop, you're going to have to consider the opportunity cost, cost that that landowner would have had for some other crop, whether that be uh, an annual crop that's in the food system, whether that be uh, another forest opportunity, uh, cotton in the southeast, et cetera. And so you have to look at the, the uh, potential income from land management in those systems and compare that to what the energy crops can do. And some of the numbers that we've heard and experienced uh, from biomass feedstock uh, analyses thus far are probably a bit low to convince many landowners to switch to dedicated energy crops. There aren't too many places in the country where $35 or even $50 a ton for a biomass crop is going to make that overall land management equation very attractive. I think there probably are some exceptions to that, and the things that I'm, uh, I would suggest we think about, well, two kind of, kinds of areas. One are going to be the marginal lands, and of course there's been a lot of interest in them over time. Um, those landowners typically are not intensively managing their land right now, uh, and they may not have the, the time or inclination themselves to get into a serious land management regime. So I think for, for much of the marginal land, we're going to look at uh, third-party uh, contract operations where we've got somebody that's going to go in and uh, perhaps put together through leasing arrangements or rentals uh, a fairly big area, lots of individual landowners they might work with, and uh, get the long-term commitments to grow those energy, dedicated energy crops and achieve economies of scale in that way. I want to connect this point with your last thought on sustainability, uh, namely, what is the interaction between energy crops and ecosystem health? The, the other uh, piece that I think is going to be very interesting is uh, looking at those energy crops as one part of a component of a more sustainable agricultural farming system. So uh, for example, those marginal lands are often on the steeper hill slopes. Uh, those are areas where there's a lot more erosion risk, and we've had programs like the Conservation Reserve Program uh, that have encouraged farmers to plant perennial grasses, including switchgrass, on those acres for a long time for erosion control benefits, for biodiversity, et cetera. We also have programs for the land that's right along streams, the, the, the buffer areas, uh, where we're trying to encourage farmers to plant perennial crops to soak up nutrients, to capture some of the eroded soil that might be coming off of their annual fields, and to keep that out of the streams. So we have these environmental benefits where we're already encouraging farmers to plant perennial crops along the stream sides and, along, and on the steep slopes. And, and what I think we need to do is couple those environmental incentives with uh, energy crops market incentives to put together a whole total package that provides the kinds of revenue streams that will convince lots of farmers to plant lar large acreages in a very short time. Um, that's a kind of coupling that hasn't really been done before, but I think as we move forward it's going to be essential to get large acreages and also to get the kinds of environmental benefits that some of the perennial energy crops can provide. Tom, regarding other uses of biomass for energy applications, Biofuel production has received criticism for its perceived distortion of food prices. Do biomass fuels from agricultural resources face the same issues of food versus fuel when used in thermal applications? I think you have to step back a little bit and, and understand a couple of things that are probably not 
fully appreciated by lots of folks in the general population, including a lot of people in the bioenergy area. The first of those is that, well, we have certainly got serious food supply issues in various parts of the world, and uh, starvation is sometimes an uh, affected uh, an out outcome of, of uh, drought and crop failure, et cetera. The, the most common reason that we have uh, a lack of food security in many parts of the world has to do with fundamental economics and a lack of local infrastructure and strong local markets to produce food. Uh, that's certainly the case in Africa where I've been spending some time over the last couple of years and, and working with people to try to think about how bioenergy crops can uh, be integrated with food crops in that region. Um, it's, I think, also the case right now as we see crop failures again in Australia and other parts of the world driving up the prices of, of wheat. So we have to understand those systems uh, and the real problems and try to address them. The other part of it is that when you look at agricultural production worldwide, and especially here in North America, the, the fundamental problem of agricultural production has not been a lack of production, but it's been overproduction. And most of our agricultural policies here in the U.S. are driven by trying to increase markets for farmers. Um, that's been a big motivation for the corn in ethanol industry, which, while it now takes uh, roughly a quarter of our corn product and turns it into fuel, it's done that in, a, in an environment where we still export. We export more than we used to. Um, so we haven't really dented our ability to feed the world as a country. Although obviously we could produce more for export, the, the markets haven't really demanded it, at least not on an average year. So, so there's kind of that disconnect. Um, we think that there are food shortages. We observe that people do starve, but it's not clear that producing more of those grains here in the U.S will necessarily address those shortages, at least not in a sustainable fashion. That said, I don't think there's any question that we live on a finite planet now and that we have to think about in the long term uh, a planet where a lot more people are going to be demanding food that actually requires more land than today as populations in Asia and Africa start to um, eat higher on the food supply chain and especially eating meat. Uh, they will be demanding more land-intensive uh, diets. And so we have to be prepared for that. That's a big reason that, that I think the bioenergy crops have to look at how they're integrated with, it, with food crops. And we've done some work here in the Northeast uh, from Michigan to Maine and, of course, in Pennsylvania, trying to understand how that might happen. And we actually think that the, uh, on the existing food crop acreage on a typical dairy farm that's producing milk and, and meat, we can actually increase the productivity by roughly 20% by the introduction of winter crops. So that's a very easy kind of low-hanging fruit opportunity. The kinds of things I mentioned earlier with perennial grasses along buffer strips, along steep slopes, again, that's not competing with where we're doing food production but it's creating uh, a more integrated landscape and a more integrated farming system that provides energy and food at the same time. And I think that's where we need to really put our emphasis. Uh, how do we actually find systems that do continue to produce food for both domestic consumption and the rest of the world, but also produce energy at the same time? 
I think it's not that difficult, but it does take a different way of thinking about farming than we've done in the past. Many BTEC members either sell or use biomass combustion systems. One of the biggest problems with using agricultural residues seems to be boiler fouling due to the chemical composition of these materials, namely from chlorine and alkali. Is there anything that can be done on the feedstock side to address this problem? I think there are a couple of things on the feedstock supply chain that we have to think about. First of all, the, the fundamental reason for that is it's, we have uh, material coming in to the plant from agricultural sources that include both plant biomass and also um, residual soil and dust and things like that that they're picking up. And uh, there are various types of harvesting strategies and processing strategies that can minimize the introduction of um, non-plant alkali materials. And I think we have to be a lot more cautious about it. I think there's, there's a big opportunity to work back the supply chain and to uh, create alternative strategies for harvest, transport, and storage that minimize the introduction of contaminants. Uh, we, can, we've, we see situations with ag residues where um, if you go to a multi-pass system where you harvest the material, you let it lay on the soil, you come back after a few days of drying, you bale it up, um, you pick up a, sometimes up to 5 and even 10% of the total biomass can be that soil. And you don't need to add those extra elements to a combustion process. It's very interesting work with single-pass harvesting technologies. Uh, pull the material up, get it immediately up, up off the ground and into a vehicle, and then keep it clean. And that can be uh, one pretty good strategy. Another thing that seems to work pretty effectively is looking at the time of harvest. And we have some really good data from here in Pennsylvania with switchgrass, where if you harvest in the springtime after uh, fall rains and winter snow and, and some spring rain as well, uh, you can actually leach out many of those uh, problematic compounds and have much lower content of chlorine and alkali and therefore uh, much less of that problem. Tom, throughout your career you've been witness to biomass feedstock policy and even testified before the U.S. Senate. What policies would you recommend to support increased agricultural biomass resources? The, the first thing that is important for really any renewable energy system, but I think it's true for biomass in several different ways, is to try to make sure that the playing field is level. You know, we, we have massive uh, sunk investments in our conventional energy technologies, and we're never going to un undo that. The, the new capital costs associated with anything new are going to be a, bur a burden and a hurdle. But I think we, we, when, from the policy perspective, we have to make sure that we have a relatively easy system to incorporate new, and in the case of biomass, often smaller generation systems than we had with conventional fossil fuels. That can be uh, through regulation, but it, there's also a philosophy there, and, and I think there's pretty wide recognition that um, a, a widely distributed energy system has some advantages in terms of our grid and interconnect and overall reliability, but it's a bit more trouble for the utilities to work with, and that disincentive for them to work with lots of smaller generators is something that we really have to overcome. The other area has to do with the broader environmental opportunities and, and impacts that have to do with biomass energy. And I want to start out with the carbon balance. Uh, of course, that's a really important part of the bioenergy picture, 
And while we've done a very good job over the years of, of reminding people that biomass carbon is part of our current carbon cycle and that it's come out of the atmosphere in recent years or recent decades in the case of trees, um, we don't have really good systems in place to track that carbon as it moves through the system. And there have been some critical studies in the last couple of years that have pointed out that uh, biomass systems done wrong can actually uh, not achieve their potential and perhaps have some negative impacts. And so I think it, it behooves the industry to, to get in front of those issues and to really develop some supply chains where we do know how to remove biomass from agricultural systems, from forest systems, et cetera, in ways which increase the capacity of those systems to sequester carbon and also use the biomass as efficiently as possible. Uh, and that's a really important piece to overall reducing our carbon footprint as a society. Some comments I, I introduced earlier, which is the, the opportunity of biomass production systems to provide other kinds of ecosystem services and making sure that we have systems in place to capture those benefits, to document them, to uh, provide and, and use the financial incentives for better water quality, for carbon sequestration, for biodiversity, for reduced erosion. All of those system benefits that we know biomass can provide and we, we need to have uh, good documentation of those and really recognize that, um, that there are some, some trade-offs there as well. And Tom, any other final remaining thoughts on policy? When, when I hear people say that uh, biomass energy has got a zero carbon footprint, uh, that's not usually the case. We need to be more sophisticated at that and understand that. And, um, and similarly, when I hear people say that they're going to use marginal land or um, residues and that that will have no impact on the food versus fuel debate, uh, that's not often the case either. We have to understand in a more sophisticated way what those trade-offs are and then make sure our biomass supply systems address them as effectively as possible. Well, Tom, that will have to be the last word. Thank you for sharing your perspectives on the place of agriculture in the biomass thermal supply chain, in addition to helping BTEC complete its work grant activities. Really, I appreciate your time today. Further information on Dr. Tom Richard and his work at Penn State can be found at www.bioenergy.psu.edu. More resources, including interviews and archived webinars on the biomass industry, are available on the BTEC website at www.biomassthermal.org. Thank you so much for listening.